Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. A mural entitled Justice Lifts the Nations, painted by Paul Robert in 1904, hung for many, many years in the old Supreme Court building in a small town in Switzerland. The picture in the foreground, you can kind of see the litigants, and I, and I brought the picture, I don't know that you can see it real well, but in the foreground, you can see the people up front fighting, a spouse, a husband and wife, an architect and a, and a builder. And, a, and the like above, you can see the judges who are standing there in some respects in a quandary. Well, what do we do with these cases before us? The artist answers this question in some respects very simply. As most of us know, the picture of justice, Lady Justice, is blindfolded, and the sword is held vertically toward the sky. But in this painting, in this mural, justice is unblindfolded, and her sword is pointing downward on top of a book, a book which is labeled the Word of God. Today, as we walk through Romans chapter 2, I want you to see with me again the necessity, the absolute necessity of obeying God's word. As sinful people, we are often blind to our own sinfulness. We are often blind to our own failures. And what I want you to observe with me today is this. On judgment day, your heritage... Your religion, your works will not stand before God. Only obedience to his word will matter. And we'll talk about that more. Some of you may initially, as I say that, you say, whoa, 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 wait. (laughs) I don't like how that hangs. Well, remember what Paul is trying to communicate here. He's not telling us the whole story in chapter 2. He's developing. We'll get to some of that later. Paul's point is very intentional here, and it's relating to his audience. Remember, he's dealt with the Gentiles end of chapter 1. Now he's moved on to the Jews in chapter 2. And so we'll discuss that. Remember Paul's point as he writes this great epistle, probably uh, the largest in our New Testament. His goal is to make a connection, to clearly explain Jesus, the gospel, to defend the gospel. And in spite of the rejection by the Jews, he wants people to understand that Jesus is calling them. Despite the rejection of their own Jewish Messiah, Jesus still is the Messiah. He still is the Redeemer. He can still rescue you. And that is the message 
of the gospel. But there are very real implications of that. And Paul's going to get to that by the time we get to the end of this book, chapters 12 to 15, Paul is going to roll out for us the ethics of the gospel. How do we engage each other? There is a right way. So he's going to address that before we're done. It's important for us to remember, to recall where we're coming from. So the end of chapter 1, remember, he's addressing the Gentiles and their denial of God, their refusal to acknowledge him, and all that that leads to, their futile thinking, a darkened heart. But he moves on in our text last week to the Jews, and he addresses initially their self-righteousness. Their perception is, we're okay. We're okay, why? Well, because of who we are, because God has given us his word, because we have this sign, this symbol of our covenant relationship with God, which we'll touch on before we're done. So all of that is what they cling to. This is why we have a relationship with God. Now, if we're honest today, there's many of us in this room, we can cling to things that aren't the gospel. We cling to things and we think, I'm right with God because of this. Sometimes it's heritage. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. I've known this all my life. Or I've gone to church all my life. Or my mom was very religious. Or my parents were very religious. Whatever. Folks, we can cling to those things. Here's the truth. That has no standing. No merit before God. And this is going to be Paul's point as he walks through. And the reason it's his point is because he's addressing uh, the religious side. First, he addresses the Gentiles who, in a sense, they know they're wicked, right? And, And the Jews say, yeah, we know they're wicked too. You know, as Paul writes the end of chapter one, the Jews are sitting there saying, yeah, that's right. They are bad. They are evil. But wait, wait, before we're done, Paul will bring them back to the same accusations that he levies against the Gentiles. Watch, all right? So the beginning, as we continue, the beginning, Paul is carrying on this message. He's going to address the influence of the law with humanity, verses 12 to 16. And he continues on this theme. He's first addressing those without the law. Remember what that means? It's simply a description of, of the Gentiles. Those without the law are the Gentiles. God did not come to them, have this interaction with them like he does with the children of Israel in the wilderness. He gives them the law. He gives them the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, right? He never does that with the Gentiles. So that is all Paul is describing. It's referring to the Gentiles. And he says, for those who don't have the law, they'll perish without the law. Now, what is the idea of perish? It's the idea of eternal loss. And there isn't a definition of what that is. Paul isn't describing what that loss looks like here. The point is, if you live apart from the law, you'll die apart from the law. You'll be judged apart from the law. But you'll know enough, based on on Romans 1, you'll know enough. That God will be just in his judgment. He goes on. The second group, the second group are those who have the law and they will be judged by the law. And what that means is this. 
God will judge them by the standard and the teaching that he communicated to them. So for all of us, there is a sense in which we are accountable for God's communication to us. Do you understand in the 21st century, you are accountable for God's communication to you through this book. God has spoken. And in some respects, you have a unique opportunity. You have more information than Moses had. You have more than Paul had. Though I feel like at times Paul might have understood it better, right? But, but, but we have more than Paul had. 66 books. How well do you understand this? Folks, we are accountable to God for this truth. Are you ready to stand before him and give account? Do you understand this book? Do you understand God's message? Do you understand God's plan? Do you understand God's work? Listen to me. You can. It's possible. But we must. We are accountable for what he's delivered to us. Now, what Paul's point is here is that no, there's, there's no issue. The issue is not our socio or our religious heritage. Where you're coming from, whichever side of the tracks that may be, that's not the issue. Your family background, that's not the issue. That's not what gives merit before God. Paul's going to go on, and he describes that. What gives merit? What is God looking for? What does God care about? Verse 13. And if you don't have a Bible, just follow along right behind me. It's right up there behind me. Verse 13, he says, For it is not the hearer. Now remember, in the first century, there was something to hearing the word. Many people sitting in an audience like this in the first century, they didn't have a copy of the word. They didn't have a copy of the scriptures. And so somebody else would read it to them. So this is a very real challenge. The hearers of this letter, they're listening to it be read. And Paul says, those who hear are responsible to do. Man, this sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? <laughs> right? We demonstrate what we have. We demonstrate a real relationship by what we do. Being doers of the word. This is what Paul says in the second half of the, word, of the verse. But the doers of the law, they will be justified. So in this judgment, works will be evaluated as an indicator of genuine faith. Works are evaluated as an indicator. So what Paul is saying is not what you do ultimately saves you. No, not true. What Paul is saying is what you do do demonstrates genuine faith. Now, most of us, if you own a television, you have seen the commercials in the last several years that are <coughs> despicably mocking parents, right? They buy a house, and as you buy a house, you start to turn into your parents, right? It's terrible, it's mean. And if you have children, you already know that because they're using it against you. They're saying, dad, you're starting to do that, right? Like your dad, you're starting to say that like your dad. You're out cleaning the top of the garbage can. Dad, it's a garbage can. Who does that? I don't know. It's weird, right? 
But what that commercial perfectly demonstrates is that as a son, as a child, you can't help but demonstrate your family connection. That's what this is. If you are part of God's family, if you have genuine faith, at some point, you can't help but that come out of you. You can't help but do the truth of God's word. So he goes on, verse 14. He continues, For when Gentiles who do not have the law... Now what he means is, The law was not specifically delivered to them. They don't have a meeting with him at Mount Sinai where the law is delivered. Doesn't happen. They don't have the law in that sense. It doesn't mean they can't read it. It doesn't mean they can't hear it. Remember in Acts, we have a lot of Gentiles who are interested in God. They're they're interested. They're curious. And those people believe. Remember Cornelius in chapter 11, right? Peter is sent to him in Capernaum. So there there was an interest there. It doesn't mean they can't hear it. So the point isn't that there's no opportunity for them. The point is it wasn't specifically delivered to them. That's Paul's point. So it's not specifically delivered to them, but by nature, they do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now, The confusion with this passage and the huge debate, which we will not enter into this morning because it will be pointless for the the bulk of you. But the conflict is many interpreters are thinking of this as unbelieving Gentiles. I don't think that's what we're talking about. So here's what's interesting. If we look back at the roots of the Roman church, Very likely, the Roman church begins as a result of Pentecost, right? So we have Pentecost. There's Jews from all over the Roman Empire. They're at Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem. Some of those Jews were from Rome. Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost. He preaches the gospel. They believe and they go home. And what do they do once they go home? They plant a very Jewish-oriented church. A church that is still largely defined by Jewish practices. Now, do you remember, through our study of Acts, all of our discussion about Jews and Gentiles coming together? You remember that? You remember our discussion of Galatians and even sitting down to eat a meal together? You remember the conflict over that? You remember the result of that? You don't have to become Jewish to be a believer. You don't have to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. And wouldn't you say in the 21st century, hallelujah for that, right? I'm glad I don't have to become that in order to follow Jesus. That gets worked out in the first century. Listen to me. That's Paul's point again here. Very likely, the Roman church is very intimately connected to Judaism. It has this very Jewish feel. So even Gentile believers that are coming into the church, they are trying to practice certain aspects of Judaism to be accepted. And Paul says, Paul uses them as an example. Do you see how they 
can obey, even though the law wasn't delivered to them. Look at what he says next. Look at verse 15. Hopefully this sounds familiar to you, right? He says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Stop. Do you remember the new covenant in the Old Testament? What does the new covenant say? There's going to come a point at which God will write his law on their hearts. That sounds familiar. It's almost as if Paul's aware of that. And he's fully aware that the Jews are aware of the new covenant. And he says, isn't this interesting? It's almost as if these Gentiles have the law of God written on their hearts. And the transformation is demonstrated by the way that they live while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So in reality, in reality, I think Paul's point here is he's shifting to the blessing that is enjoyed by this new covenant promise to Israel. This is enjoyed by Gentiles as well. It's enjoyed by us. The law is written on your heart and on mine. And folks, literally, that's why your conscience at times will tell you, don't do that. Why? Because the law was delivered to you and your family at Sinai? No, it's because literally through Jesus, his law is written on your heart. And you know, I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't act that way. I shouldn't respond that way. I shouldn't take that. I shouldn't desire that. I shouldn't take advantage of that. All of that comes from this transformation that Jesus accomplishes in the heart. And this is Paul's point. Now, we could say a lot about conscience. We are not going to dive deeply into conscience. But remember the, the point of the conscience. The conscience is something that convicts us of wrong. At times it excuses us. At times it offers us relief when we feel like, man, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Our conscience can excuse us. But remember this, a couple of things about conscience that are important. Number one, your conscience is not inspired. Your conscience is not speaking God's truth. Your conscience is trained. And what that means is the conscience can be off. It can be wrong. It's like a gauge or a meter in your car and the meter isn't working. Uh, several years ago, I had a vehicle and the gas gauge did not work. And I, what I mean is it didn't work. It was always on E. So I could go put in $70 and guess what? It was on E, you know, which I'll confess to you was terrifying. You know what I mean? At times, I, I didn't let Jenny drive that car. I drove that car. Uh, but it was also, you know, as a guy, it's kind of exciting. Hey, you never know. I may run out of gas somewhere. You know? The gauge is off. Folks, that's how the conscience can be. It can be off. And so what we have to remember is it can be trained. It can be altered. But it always must align with Scripture. We have to line up the conscience with the Bible. That's how we accurately gauge the conscience. And then he concludes with the secret things. The secret things of the human heart. All of these will be revealed on judgment day. And this judgment will be carried out by Jesus himself. So here's the truth. All of this comes down to this reality. Paul's point is the accountability of every single person before God. 
Every single person, you today, are accountable to God. Listen to me. You will stand before God one day on judgment day. Are you ready for that day? First, do you know Jesus? Second, are you living like you know Jesus? Are you a doer of the word? Are you heeding the instruction of God? Has your heart been transformed by the power of God? It can be, it should be, by his grace. Now, Paul is going to shift back to his focus on the hope that the Jews have in their, for their relationship with God. So a couple of things, verses 17 to 24. First, we're going to look at the advantages and the obligations, the danger of hypocrisy. And this is a danger for all of us who know the Lord, who have known the Lord for many years, who think we understand how things work, who think we understand how things should go. So this is, in a sense, a warning for us. Paul, though, is writing to first century Jews, and I love the way that he does this. This entire thing, verses 17 24, is based on his conditional statement. This is a first-class condition, all right? In our Bibles, first words. But if... If, if you call yourself a Jew. Now, once he says, if you call yourself a Jew, everything else he's going to do, he's going to build on that. So he's building on this assumption. Because you call yourself a Jew, you already have this perception about your relationship with God. Listen to me. For some of us, we could say it like this. Because you, you call yourself a church goer. You have certain perceptions about yourself, right? You say, uh, that, that just got a little too close to home, right? It, it, it does. It does. But this is Paul's point. So the first thing he's going to do is he's going to list four advantages they perceive themselves to have. Then he's going to list four obligations that they perceive they have towards those who are outside, And then Paul's going to ask them four rhetorical questions. I love how Paul does this. There is such an objective, intentional focus as Paul writes this. So many times as we engage the Bible, we'll grab one verse out of chapter two. We don't have a clue what Paul's doing in this whole chapter. It is magnificent if you track. All right. I'm telling you, it is magnificent. Right. I mean, tell me it's not good. You all should be more excited. Okay. So Paul begins with that conditional clause, and it frames the whole section. Now, what Paul is doing here is not in any way anti-Semitic. This is not a statement against the Jews. And listen very carefully. Down through the Christian history, at times, we have turned some of these things Paul says into a beef with, with Jewish folks. That is wrong. That's not Paul's point. Paul is a Jew, and by the time we get to chapters 9 through 11, you see his heart. He says, I wish I could be condemned so my people could be saved. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't think he has hard feelings. He he is burdened for them, deeply burdened. That's what he's expressing here, a deep burden for them. So first, their advantages, the advantages they perceive that they have. And this is about their standing, what they think is their standing with God, their relationship with 
God. So first, in verse 18, he gives us the four advantages. They rely on the law. What that means is they're resting in the law. In essence, they're resting in the fact that God has communicated with them. It's not necessarily that they were looking at all those 613 laws and every day they're checking them all off. I did them all. I did them. I did them. I did them. I did. No, 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 no. That's not the point. The point is God communicated to us. He gave us the law. And because God communicated with us, we have a special relationship with God. Folks, if we're not careful, sometimes we can think that same thing. I faithfully attend church and therefore I'm kind of better than people who don't, right? Uh, my, my pastor, he, he, you know, he gets into some pretty thick weeds uh, from time to time. And certainly that makes me better. No, it doesn't. And it certainly doesn't make me better either. <laughs> right? We, we can't rely on that because we think we know or we think we're learning certain things or we think we're ahead. No, 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 no. We're in the same boat as them if we do that. Second one, he goes on, they boast in God. This is a pride in their perception that they exclusively know God. We have this exclusive relationship with him. Folks, listen to me. I hope you do have an exclusive relationship, but it's not because of you. It's because of his kindness to you in Jesus, right? He goes on, third one. They know his will. The law provided a source, a resource for them to understand and make ethical decisions and choices. So in that sense, Paul says, you perceive that you know exactly what God would have you to do. And you know what? As a believer, so should you. As we engage the word, we should understand what God wants us to do, not just hear his fourth one. You approve what is excellent? The action here is making a critical examination to determine, to make a choice whether or not something is genuinely right or good or honors God or not. You have the ability to make determinations based on the truth of God's word. So these are the advantages, Paul says, that the Jews have. And folks, I would argue these are the advantages that we have. As believers, the second one, though, there's obligations and these obligations would have been perceived oblig obligations by them. Listen, the prophets wrote about this. The prophet said, this is what you are supposed to do with those who are outside. This is how you're supposed to engage them. So look at the four. Number one, you're a guide to the blind. This is the spiritually blind for the Jew. They would see their position as one who is superior because they're not spiritually blind. You ever look at those outside and think in your mind, that poor person, they're spiritually blind. And I'm not. That thought ever crossed your mind? Probably it has, right? This is, this is the Jewish mindset here in chapter 2. Second, a light to those in darkness. This is a light, a light that illuminates the spirit and the soul of their fellow man. How does that happen? Because they have this unique relationship with God. So they are this light to those who are in darkness. Third, an instructor. An instructor of what is morally right, what is spiritually good, and it is for those who don't understand. So in essence, you function as an instructor to those who don't get it, 
to those who don't see their need, to those who don't understand who God is. And this is an obligation, Paul says. You're not wrong for a teacher of children. The children there, the perception of the children there, are those who are immature, are not instructed in the faith. So all of this, all of this is possible only through the law. Look at what he says at the very end there of verse 20. He says, having in the law the embodiment You have the foundation of knowledge and truth in the law. God has communicated to you his truth in the law, in his word. And then Paul asks four rhetorical questions. And these four questions are where Paul begins before making his application to them. Look at what he says. And this is amazing. The first question is, do you really teach yourselves? So you have the law, you have this ability, but are you really teaching yourselves? And Paul's question is essentially, it comes down to this. Are you actually making real application of this truth to your life? Are you making real application of God's word to your everyday life? Listen to me. If we don't, we are exactly what they were. We are hearers. And we are not doers. And folks, listen to me. This book, these words were meant to be lived. To do them. That's the call. He goes on. Second one. Do you steal? Now, I found this one fascinating because the average Jew, they would never imagine in a thousand years of actually stealing something. But as you dig more deeply into this, The idea is to manipulate or to take advantage of another's possession, even potentially somebody's possession that you are tasked with managing. So as a manager, you've been given the responsibility to care for this task, to care for this possession, to care for this investment, and you take advantage of the investment for your own gain. Paul says, do you steal? And folks, the truth is, if we are honest, for many of us, if given half a chance to take advantage of someone else's possession, would you do it? Would I do it? I think if we're honest at times, of course we would and do. The third one, do you commit adultery? Now, this is a fascinating one because to a great extent... Uh, they would have said, no, absolutely not. We do not commit adultery. But remember Jesus' application in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? Any man who looks to lust has committed adultery already in his heart. Even within the Jewish community at this time, there was at times improper relationships outside of the marriage union, but there were these ways that we could justify or still consider ourselves to be within the law, even at times polygamy, polygamous relationships. This happened in certain Jewish communities, and yet it was excused. It was legitimized as okay and still meeting the confines of the law. Paul says, really? You can't claim to preach against adultery. Are you involved in it? 
Are you doing it? Have you made a way to allow that in your life? The fourth one. And probably the most interesting, and I'll confess to you, I read far too much on this, and I could talk about this for about an hour all by itself. I will not do that. But this is a really, really interesting one. Paul takes idolatry and then connects it to robbing temples. Now, initially when we read this, why doesn't Paul just say, are you involved in idolatry? I mean, do you have idols? You have things that you're, you know, you're, you're prioritizing more than you should. That's not what Paul does. Paul literally makes an application that would have resonated in this first century era. You see, within the first century, likely there was this plundering that would go on in, in several different ways of pagan temples. At times, in order to gain favor with the small g gods of their culture, people would bring really nice gifts to the temple. Well, depending on the person, especially for the Jews, we see this in chapter 14. We see this in 1 Corinthians 8 through 11. We see the Jews say, well, those aren't really gods. They're, I mean, that's metal. It's not really a god. And so they could absolutely, with a clear conscience, take that metal that's made out of gold or silver and melt that down or chip some of that off and sell it. And Paul says, are you involved in the plundering of pagan temples for your own gain? Isn't that idolatry? You know what's fascinating? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God literally commands the people not to touch pagan gods, even for their own gain, lest they be drawn into paganism. Is that not amazing? Paul literally takes a tiny little piece of the law and connects it here to their life scenario and says, hey, are you more involved in idolatry than you realize? And you, and you say you're keeping the law. You say you're obeying God. You say you're a doer of the law. And here's what I want you to catch. Paul accuses the Gentiles of all these things, of not knowing God or responding appropriately to Him. He accuses them of idolatry, accuses them of immorality, accuses them of breaking down the social community. Stop for a second and think through his accusations to the Jews. Do you really know God like you think you do? Is God really instructing, teaching you like you think He is? Are you clinging to the idol of possession. There couldn't be a more applicable one to the 21st century. We love our possessions, our stuff, our money, and we'd do anything to cling to it. Wouldn't we? It's true. The third one, immorality. Our culture is rampant with immorality. And yet Paul brings that right back to the Jewish community. And the fourth one, the breakdown of the social environment. All are guilty before God of the very same things. Now stop for a minute and think about that. Do you realize where Paul has brought his Jewish audience? You are every bit as guilty as the people who you're amening at at the end of chapter 1. Amen! Those Gentiles, they got real problems. 
And right after they do that, Paul brings them to this. And now they're all saying, man, this Paul guy, he, he, you know, I'm glad he's not here. You know, this is a letter. I'm glad he's not here. The truth is, all of us are guilty before God and we're all guilty of the same stuff. We really are. And the moment you look at somebody else and say, man, that poor person, that poor sinner, that poor... Folks, it's in you. It's in me. You have broken God's law. You have transgressed against Him. You love possessions too much. And so do I. Immorality is rampant in our culture. Folks, it's rampant many times in our own mindset. And folks, whether we like it or not, at times we are the cause of social breakdown in the culture because of the way we engage or don't engage. We need grace. First, to see we're broken and fallen and sinful. And we need grace to change, to be transformed. Do you today claim to love God, but in truth you defame His name by the way that you live? This is where Paul takes us at the end of verse 23 and 24. He says, you boast, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Listen to me, you can't get more clear than that. Paul literally brings them to the point where he says, you think that you have this standing because of the law. No, you actually are breaking it. And then he quotes Isaiah 52 and verse 5, and he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. No, do you realize God's name is defamed because of the way you act? And listen to me. We have talked about this many, many times before. How many times has somebody walked into a, an environment in which you are, are at, you're located, you work there, maybe it's a community thing, somebody walks in, they claim to be a believer, and they are sour, mean, angry, arrogant, just the last person you want to be by in that whole room. And they claim to know Jesus. Listen to me, that's exactly Paul's point. You are the very reason God's name is despised sometimes. Why? Because God's word isn't changing you. You like to hear it. But do we do it? By God's grace, we can. We must. So the first sign for the Jews is this relationship of the covenant. The second sign is their symbol. Their symbol, verses 25 and following. We're almost done. Stay with me. Just one minute. Verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. You see that big if? Man, that's a big if. That's, a, again, a conditional clause. If. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes what? Uncircumcision. Listen to me. Nothing could be worse for a Jew. That symbol meant a lot for them. It was enormous for them. Paul says, you don't have it if you don't obey. Verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Paul flips the script around. He says if somebody doesn't have the symbol, but they do obey God, doesn't it demonstrate a transformation? 
And he's going, to, he's going to describe that transformation more in a second. Look at verse 27. We're going to go back to something very important we already talked about. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So Paul is saying, listen, you are so focused on the outward sign Listen to me. I cannot say this more directly. So are we. We are concerned about the outward sign. That's why we measure ourselves by, I came to church. I come faithfully. I'm better than you. I come back on Sunday nights. And folks, you you should. That's not the point. But the point is, it's not a measuring stick for me, for you. It's a demonstration of transformation. It's a demonstration of real, genuine faith. Something real is in me and transforming me. And that's what Paul describes in verse 29. Look what he says. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Now, isn't that interesting? He's also already talked about that back in verse 15. The transformation of the heart. Listen to me. The purpose and work of Jesus is to transform your heart. What transforms your heart is not learning more of the Bible, though it can. What transforms your heart is yielding yourself to who God is, to who Jesus is, to what Jesus came to accomplish, and understanding his word in light of that. You have got to take the word of God in light of that and allow the spirit of God, as he states next, by the spirit, not the letter. Listen, we can look at the Bible and say, here's all this stuff I got to do. I do everything I'm supposed to do. But it's not here. It's here. I do stuff but it's not in me. And so when I get tired, I quit doing it. When I get worn out, I I stop. I give up. It's over. I'm done. Folks, genuine transformation is coming from within because your heart has been changed. And that's the issue today. Has your heart been changed? When your heart is changed and genuine response is coming from a transformed heart, look what he says at the end of the verse. His praise. This one, his praise is not from man. It is from God. And there's not one of us in this room, if we were going to be honest today, and say, do you want God to praise you on judgment day? I would sign up for that. (laughs) I would. I would sign up. I would love that. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have a high hope that that will happen, but I, I would love that. You know how it's going to happen? Transformation by Jesus from inside out. And for some of you today, that reality has never happened. That is not you. You are a good person. That's not what this is about. That's exactly what Paul's confronting is a good person. Listen to me. What is about is transformation from inside out that only happens through Jesus. 
Remember in John 3, Jesus meets up with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You know what that means? He's a teacher of the teachers of Israel. This guy is a professor. He's got a doctorate degree in Judaism. He knows more than you and me and all of us combined in this room. This guy was set. And Jesus says, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand what it means to be born Again, this is what Jesus came to do. To make you and me a new creation in Christ. That doesn't happen by doing good works. It happens by being transformed. Listen to me. Only Jesus can transform. Only By placing your faith in Jesus, can you be transformed like that? The reality is, you are either being transformed by Jesus or you are in opposition to him. John, at the end of that text, where he deals with Nicodemus, he responds. John, I think, is giving us the comment, God so loved the world. You know the verse. God so loved the world, he sent his son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How do you have eternal life? By being transformed from the inside out. Placing your faith in Jesus who was lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, right? Okay. But he goes on in verse 17. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Listen to me. It doesn't matter if you've grown up in church. It doesn't matter if you've given away hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to the church or charities or whatever. If you don't know Jesus today, you are under the condemnation of God. You will stand in judgment before him. But listen to me. You don't have to. Through Jesus, you can be rescued. If you've never turned to Jesus, will you turn to Him today? If you've turned in faith to Jesus, will you live it? Will you live like it? Will you be a doer of the Word and allow it to transform you and shape everything that you do? All your longings, concerns, passions, Priorities, all of them, shaped by Jesus. That should be happening for God's people as we're transformed by God's word.